Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. It's time for the Bible. And forsooth, it is time for the Bible Geek again. And I want to get into some of those exciting questions in just a second. And, uh, you know, intellectual matters can be quite uh, exciting. I wouldn't have stuck with them all this long if they weren't. I'd like to just let you uh, know of one thing I'm planning on doing on uh, Patreon. Uh, well, very shortly, Carol and I, by the way, will have a, um, a date to share, probably a Friday night. Uh, on uh, the uh, the uh, Heretics Anonymous Google um, chat thing, and so I'll I'll hopefully be able to tell you that by the next uh, Bible Geek. Also, uh, I have uh, a thought that uh, that uh, Patreon patrons might be interested in reading some theological and biblical papers I did some years ago at Gordon-Conwell Seminary in a Drew um, the, uh, graduate school. And so I got to scan the things because these were pre-computer. Uh, but they have some interest. One of them is like a form-critical classification of a number of Sufi sayings attributed to Jesus. Got an A on that one. Uh, and uh, likewise, one I did on the comparison of the theological methods of Thomas Torrance and Paul Tillich. Uh, and that's kind of a long one, so it'll take me a while to get these things transcribed. Uh, I don't really have a scanner or don't know how to do it. Uh, but uh, I think that would be of interest, and I have some other ones too you might enjoy. So we'll uh, see about that. Uh, then I wanted to thank... A bunch of uh, my uh, patrons and uh, for for their help, which really is helpful. Uh, for instance, Kim Lewis, an author whose work I've reviewed on on um, Amazon. He's in uh, Lorton, Virginia. Justin Bowen uh, in League City, Texas. I, I just find it fascinating to know where everybody's from. Uh, Michael Goodpaster, a pal who took. Carol and myself to a Rush concert. He lives in Harrisonburg, Virginia. James Bisey, I'm guessing it is B-I-S-E. Hope you'll forgive my mispronunciation if I did it. Uh, he's in uh, Sand Springs, Alabama. Then uh, Eric Vogelpohl, who is in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Chuck Gibson in Little Rock, Arkansas. And visited there once uh, speaking and went out to a great barbecue joint there. 
Then uh, Jay Mumford, loyal uh, patron who's in Walnut Creek, Alabama. Uh, the immortal Jeffrey Tola in John's, uh, Johnstown, Ohio. He's done a lot of uh, great uh, questions on the Bible Geek. Uh, and I'm, I went over a manuscript of his, which I think he's finally decided to publish. Um, Ryan Fedewa, again, forgive me if I'm mispronouncing, from uh, Buffalo Grove, Illinois. Uh, Christopher O. in uh, Hammond, Louisiana, or as we used to say when I lived in Mississippi, Louisiana. And uh, it was a long time before I found out I uh, wasn't saying it right. Uh, Don E. Stevens uh, in Roswell, Georgia. Uh, not not the UFO Roswell, right? I have another friend who, who does live there. Uh, and he's not an extraterrestrial, at least I never thought so. It's possible he was... Uh, incognito. Uh, Ian Brown in McKinney, Texas. Uh, then um, from my old stomping grounds in New Jersey, Bill Runzer in Chesterfield, New Jersey. Oh boy, I tell you, I feel like uh, Miss What's-Her-Name, the host of Romper Room. Uh, probably none of you are old enough to remember what that is, but uh, they would always get the magic mirror at the end and say hello to all the kids that had written in uh, in the audience. Then uh, uh, Raphael, the archangel, presumably, in Sao Paulo, Spain, and uh, William G. Hutchison in uh, Lansdale, Pennsylvania, Zachary Moore in Keller, Texas, Steve Van Nest in Washburn, Tennessee, and uh, one of my favorites, uh, name-wise, Straight Jacket Candidate in Huntington Beach, uh, California. Now, that's a great one, I tell you. I just love uh, pseudonyms and stuff. And then uh, let's not leave out Orlando Fuentes from Drexel Hill, Pennsylvania. And I'll, I will gratefully acknowledge Samoria the next time. But well, let's say uh, we get into some of those uh, geekish questions here. This one is, uh, is has an interesting origin. Andrew in Long Island, or should I say Long Island, uh, says, I've decided to read the Bible from cover to cover and have recently started mainly following the American Standard Version. This is the first time I've really attempted this, and I want to go about it with both an open mind and a critical eye. Already I have multiple questions, the first and most practical of which is, what are some core books you would suggest to supplement this reading for an amateur Bible geek like me? Uh, this, Believe it or not, this is kind of a toughie because most introductory books on the Bible uh, are written from what I think is a much too conservative standpoint. Um, soon I'll be able to, well, sometime next year I'll be able to uh, recommend my uh, two-volume Bible introduction, uh, Holy Fable, the Bible without, uh, the Bible undistorted by faith. Um a couple of, well, three real classics that might set the tone for critical study, though some find them a little dense. Uh, I don't because I am dense myself. Uh, one would be Julius Wellhausen, W-E-L-L-H-A-U-S-E-N, a prolegomena to the history of ancient Israel. Again, it's, uh, it's pretty detailed. But if uh, if you read it and outlined it as I did, uh, I think a lot of it will stick with you. 
then uh, there is uh, another great one. We'll go to the New Testament uh, for the Gospels. Nobody yet has beaten uh, the great David Friedrich Strauss, S-T-R-A-U-S-S, The Life of Jesus Critically Examined. And then on Paul, there's F.C. Bauer, B-A-U-R, Ferdinand Christian Bauer, uh, his uh, book, uh, Paul the Apostle of Jesus Christ. All these are 19th century books, but they've been reprinted and some of them are available uh, online. But if you don't mind hefting a kind of a heavy burden, those are all very illuminating books that contrast traditionalist interpretations with more critical ones. And uh, they're just mind blowingly good. Uh, I, I'm sure I uh, should be more conversant with some more uh, general stuff. Uh, but, uh, gee, I'll have to... Uh... Well, Bart Ehrman did an uh, introduction of the New Testament. Uh, I'm sure that'd be very good. I forget the exact title because they all have uh, very similar titles, right? But Bart's book would be very good. Um and for the Old Testament, uh, maybe Richard Elliot Friedman, uh, F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N, I think. Uh, he's uh, written a couple of really uh, good books uh, on uh, on the Pentateuch, especially. And uh, there there are others, but those are some to, to chew on. Uh, my next question, uh, questions regard Genesis chapter 5. Chapter 4 de- details the generations of Cain and ends with the birth of Adam's third son, Seth. Genesis 5 then begins like this. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man in the likeness of God, he made him. Male and female, he created them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. And Adam lived a hundred and thirty years and begat his son in his own likeness after his image, and he called his name Seth. And the days of Adam after he begat Seth were eight hundred years, and he begat sons and daughters. Genesis 5.14, American Standard Version. Now, this isn't the new American Standard. Uh, This sounds a little more like the King James. This is the translation of which the new American Standard is the modernizing revision. That is, you know, linguistically modernizing. But this is a good translation, too. It's based on uh, much better texts than were uh, used in King James. I think this comes from 1901. Uh, Anyway, uh, from this brief snippet, uh, Genesis 5, 1 through 4, you can see some of the hallmark uh, signs that you're dealing with the priestly writer of the Pentateuch, one of the three authors of the Pentateuch. The other two being uh, the Yahwist and the Elohist. um, And uh, for one thing, uh, the priestly writer is very interested in registers and numbers and genealogies, and uh, he always starts him out with, this is the book of the generations of so-and-so. Then he uh, immediately starts reproducing things he said in Genesis 1, in the day that God created the heaven and the earth and all that stuff, uh, and all of that is, is a quote. Um, and... Uh, even though this is not Genesis 1, right? It's quoting stuff from it. 
The long lifespans are a feature of the priestly narrative, nobody else. And uh, the, uh, uh, let's see, the careful statistics of how long a patriarch lived after he begat a son and and so forth. Uh, And the prolixity of it, the repetitiveness. Nobody's as repetitive, except maybe me, uh, as the the priestly writer. Anyway, um, uh, okay, uh, continuing with the question, the fact that this chapter begins with a line, this is the book of the generations of Adam, makes me think that originally this chapter must have been its own book, separate from the accounts surrounding it. Is this accurate, or am I just reading too much into an ancient literary convention? Actually, I, I see why you're saying that, but you, you're right in your suspicion that by book they don't mean necessarily a separate work. Uh, and uh, the big big divisions of a book were often called books, and uh, so it's uh, it, it it's one and the same term is used as I just mentioned for various other genealogies, and so that's that's really uh, what's going on there: the book of the generations of the heaven and the earth, and so on. Uh, furthermore, I know that Genesis one and two provide two differing creation stories. Does Genesis five offer a third one, or at least an alternative continuation of the second creation account that ignores the Cain and Abel story? And if so, which one is likely to be the older story, if either of them? My money is on Genesis five, as Seth seems to be a more natural continuation of Adam's lineage, while the Cain and Abel story comes off as more of a standalone parable uh, that goes on to explain a branch in the line of human procreation. Uh, well, they do seem to be different uh, versions because um, one of them doubles back uh, and uh, you don't have the same uh, idea, as, as I recall, that Seth is a, is a replacement uh, for Abel. And uh, as usual, they, they just, uh, I mean, there's all kinds of diversion. If you look at different language versions of Septuagint and different manuscripts, you find different numbers of years and all that. So uh, there was a lot of stuff that went into that, and it's uh, hard to recover whatever the original may have been. Uh, but uh, there's loads of uh, redactional seams all over the Old Testament where you can tell things have been patched together. Uh, and uh, uh, let's see here. Uh, see, some further speculation about Seth as I get the sense that he may have been more of an important figure in Hebrew oral tradition than the biblical account makes him out to be. <laughs> oh, how right you are. I know that the Sethian Gnostics made a pretty big deal out of him, obviously, because they're named after, as he says. Are there more extra-biblical stories of Seth out there similar to the various Apocrypha and Apocalypses centered around Adam? Yeah, uh, there's one of the Nag Hammadi texts uh, in which he isn't really a character, but it does say, it's called the Three Stelae of Seth. Uh, these three uh, stone or clay engraved tablets that he uh, posted on the side of a mountain so that they wouldn't be swept away in the flood. And uh, it has sort of typical Gnostic stuff. I think it can, is supposed to contain uh, the revelation of Dosithius, though that's kind of messed up because he lived much, much later. Um, but yeah, and there is a rabbinic story, not Gnostic, 
that involves Seth. And in this one, Adam is on his deathbed, and uh, Eve and Seth are, uh, they know he hasn't got much time left. So Eve sends Seth back to the Garden of Eden, and he asks the angel, the cherub, I should say, who is guarding the, the tree, according to the end of Genesis 3, if he could just have a piece of fruit from the tree to the tree of life uh, to revive Adam. And uh, the angel says, no, I'm sorry, I can't do it, but I tell you what I will do. Here is a seed from the tree. Uh, Go back home and plant it. And so Seth does this, and the tree that comes up becomes the staff, well, it's cut down and carved into the staff of Moses, which then becomes the the magic wand of Solomon the king and the great sorcerer. And then in Christian retellings of this, it somehow becomes the upright of the cross of Jesus. Um, Then in a story I wrote, it becomes the uh, staff of Solomon Cain, but that's uh, for another day, I guess. Uh, he was real big in a different Gnostic group, the Mandeans, who were still around today. And uh, they they uh, had several of the patriarchs, the early ones, as divine beings, either exalted into that, like Enoch was, or uh, perhaps... Uh, briefly incarnated on earth and originally angelic beings uh, and uh, oh, Abel is one of them uh, Hibil Ziwa and another is uh, Enosh, Enosh Uthras and uh, it seems to me Seth was also uh, one of these so yeah there must have been a lot more than that because like why did God replace Abel it's like he he must have had some messianic role for him and that's kind of what Seth becomes almost a messiah Uh, let's see finally and this is pure speculation I wonder if there's any etymological connection between the biblical character of Seth and the Egyptian god Set Set is most popularly remembered as the jealous trickster god who murders his brother Osiris but this is not the only depiction of him in Egyptian myth he is also presented as a protector of Ra at night and slayer of the serpent Apep that makes me think uh, that perhaps Adam's son Seth could have been based on an earlier or later, more benign version of the Egyptian set. Is there any merit to this, or am I reaching here? Is the similarity between the Hebrew name Seth and the Egyptian set just a coincidence with a va- with vastly different etymological origins? Well, uh, Andrew, I have wondered this for years, but I know nothing uh, of uh, the Egyptian language. Uh, And uh, I think I have read, as if a fact, that there are two versions of the same name, but uh, I've uh, never been sure the source was doing any more than speculating. So if anybody does happen to know, will you please uh, email me, because it would be good to settle this, at least find out what the current thinking of those who know the languages is. Real good question. Okay, now this one is, I've got to scroll down here, it's sort of long. Um, Yeah, this is from Caden Fox. 
and uh, who says, I started off with the intention of creating a science fiction character that combined elements of yourself and Bart Ehrman, but as the story wrote itself, I wound up with a combination of Margaret Barker and Kenneth Humphreys. <laughs> that sounds great. I considered sending you the whole chapter where the professor gives a lecture on John, angels, and the Holy Spirit so he can tear it apart before it reaches publication, but in good faith I'd have to pay you for that sort of editorial work, and I'm also on a tight budget this winter. Still, the... I Winter? Yeah, I've been collecting these for a long time. Still, my uh, the ideas my character expounds are ones I haven't heard on the Bible Geek, although I'm far from caught up on all the back episodes. The first oddity I introduced is taking Luke as something at, uh, at something like face value. Um, Luke, let's see. Any good voice for that? Uh, well, what the heck? Uh, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. That is to say, Luke may be a synoptic, but it has a later authorship date than John. Could well be. Perhaps Ur Lucas preceded John, but canonical Luke is the last gospel, sort of like how Frankenstein, the true story, came 155 years after Mary Shelley's work. I had this um, as the predominant paradigm for one reason, and that's so the professor could recall Mark, Matthew, John, and Luke bless this bed on which I puke. If I die from too much gin, I praise the Lord, forgive my sin. Oh, that's pretty good. Uh, I've heard of arguments from Matthean priority, but do you know of any arguments for the order uh, used above? The only one I can think of is that Theophilus is Theophilus of Antioch, and that John is the work of Serinthus. Yeah, th there certainly are good reasons to uh, make Luke later than John, or at least to our version, as you say, of our canonical version of Luke later than John. But the the thing is that there are passages where it looks like John is commenting on or even refuting Luke, uh, and others where it looks like Luke is using John, and I think it's quite likely that what you have is the reflection of different versions cross-pollinating, that is, redactors who knew the one taking information from it and adding it to the other. Uh, that's about the only sense I can make, and it, it does make good sense. Uh, so um, that could well be. Yeah, let's see. Oh, I see you are a poet. And I do think Theophilus of Antioch is the uh, dedicatee of uh, Luke and Acts. Uh, on a more serious note, well, it's pretty serious. Uh, the way I had Nicodemus present in the book of John involves the fact that his mother is never mentioned by name. I took Margaret Barker's idea that Jesus is a theophany of Yahweh and that Yahweh is God the Son, whereas El Elyon is God the Father. Mary Magdalene is a theoph theophany, too, of Asherah. Barker and Humphreys both reference the unbroken net with 153 fishes and how uh, 
hey, Magdalene is 153 in Greek gematria, technically isosophy, if you want to be pedantic. I know you're not fond of gematria, but Barker argues that Revelation is the core book from which the rest of the Christian canon draws, and Revelation does show a certain thought process where those who have wisdom can calculate the number. And uh, unlike gematria, where the values of various phrases are seen as equivalent, isosophy is more focused on names as seen in graffiti, such as an inscription from Pompeii, I love her whose number is 545. Yeah, I've, I've long heard of that. Fascinating. There's also the genealogies. Matthew's genealogy has the three sets of 14 generations because King David, who doesn't have any vowels in Hebrew, so he's King DVD, uh, and that's 4 plus 6 plus 4 by way of Gematria, which is why he skips over some people and adds random names to the list in Chronicles. Luke, instead of 42 generations, including Jesus himself, makes 11 blocks of 7 each, a total of 77 generations, as if Lamech avenged himself on him, right? If Cain be avenged sevenfold, then surely Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Then there's the 27 books of the New Testament itself, 3 times 3 times 3. I know you've said Magdalene means hairdresser, but the more the most common reading is tower. Uh, and this tower may be the tower from Micah 4. In Micah 4, you have the fig tree, which was important enough as a metaphor that the Gospels, which include it, take it from what must be an infancy gospel because it has Jesus acting like a brat. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that is where it comes from. You also have the idea of Yahweh as not being the only God. Again, Micah 4, 4 uses Yahweh Sabaoth. And 4, 5 says that all people do walk in the name of their respective gods with the people of Israel walking in the name of their warrior god. Micah 4.8 has Yahweh ask, Why are you crying? And Jesus asks this of the Magdalene in John 20. John also has Mary Magdalene mistaking Jesus for the gardener, and with the context, within the context of that gospel, it's an obvious reference to John 15:1, where Jesus calls himself the vine and calls his father the gardener, meaning exoterically, Mary mistakes him for a mortal, but es esoterically, that she absolutely recognizes him as Yahweh. As you pointed out to the point of mind-bogglement in Jesus at the vanishing point, though, that's my essay in the InterVarsity Press book, uh, The Historical Jesus, Five Views, so much of what we have in the New Testament is a rewrite of things in the Old Testament, and especially given the Pauline concept that Jesus is the last Adam. The post-resurrection appearance is about how Mary the Magdalene mistakes Jesus the Nazarene for a gardener, and how, as the keeper of the garden, this folds the story back to John 3.14, where Jesus compares himself to the bronze snake of Moses, and by proxy to the Eden serpent. Um, by the way, as to my uh, neglect of the uh, numerology thing, I have to admit, 
it, it is an ancient practice. Uh, so uh, I've probably been giving it short shrift and ought to reconsider arguments based on it, though it's a little difficult to be sure we've gotten it right. Anyway, um, Gnostic sects like the Naasenes and the Valentinians thought of the snake as the original Gnostic revealer and identical with Christ. Um, Polycarp left this in because the exoteric meaning is so harmless. Moses had a snake image that would cure poison, just as Jesus could take away the toxin of sin. Still, educated people would be familiar with the Platonic concept of sin, very similar to that of St. Augustine, that sin is a form of ignorance. It is a lack of a thing, in this case, knowledge of good and evil, rather than the presence of a thing like a desire to do evil. All the bad guys are good guys in their own worldview. The role of the Magdalene as the anointer is something I really tried to stress. I know the Orthodox Christian worldview is such that Jesus rose from the dead by virtue of his hypostatic nature and needed no preparation, but I think a more natural, more authentic reading of the Gospels is that Mary's anointing is what makes Jesus the Christ and that it is her action that allows him to be raised from the dead. What saith the geek on this? Yeah, I've uh, argued for some time that um, that the uh, empty tomb stories are cut from the same cloth as the various stories where the consort or wife or whatever of the slain god raises him from the dead as uh, Isis uh, anointed Osiris and raised him from the dead. And that originally the story of the anointing, which I think in John says, she saved the ointment for the day of my burial. Uh, well, th th that it implies that uh, originally Mary and the others going to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus led to his resurrection on the spot and that's when Jesus said in the story of course not in history uh, she's saved it for the day of my burial and uh, and that uh, that the skepticism this ointment could have been sold for the poor was the typical skepticism of the miracle story before the miracle is wrought and uh, Jesus then does rise from the dead so I think you're right about that um the uh, the thing with Mary being a goddess demoted uh, that she was originally Eve, who was originally Heba, a god known in in Phrygia and Greece and all that. Um, this is interesting because in one of the two Gnostic texts known as the Questions of Mary, there is this shocking passage, which M.R. James does not translate, but leaves in Latin because it was so uh, astonishing. It said that uh, the Savior standing before, the risen Savior standing before Mary Magdalene caused a woman to emerge from his side, and of course that's Adam and Eve stuff, and uh, he uh, apparently masturbated and showed the handful of semen to Mary and says, this is what we must do to enter the kingdom, at which she fainted dead away. I can well imagine. 
But uh, that has to do, I think, with encratite piety, that you go back to the garden, back to the unity of, of uh, the, the, the Adam through the second Adam and so on. Uh, so there, there's who knows what all was, how much Eden material was in there in the early Christian understanding. Um, one final question, more of a confession of my own ignorance. I assumed until very recently that Lord of Hosts referred to communion wafers. That's, that's pretty interesting. Also known as consecrated hosts. Am I truly the only one who's ever made this mistake? I don't know. I've never heard that before, but I sure wouldn't be surprised. That's uh, it's really, uh, really cute. I like that. But it does mean Lord of the armies and probably the hosts of heaven who were worshipped in the Jerusalem temple for a long time. An Assyrian cult, but adopted by Hebrews, and my guess is Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of Hosts, um, comes from that. Okay, this from Timo, a Finnish name, I think. Right? I was listening to an old Point of Inquiry interview from 2006, could that be ten years ago? Oh boy. Where you said that the New Testament is Stoic or something along those lines. I don't know much about Stoicism beyond the fact that Marcus Aurelius was a Stoic. But over the last few years, I've heard more and more influential people, particularly self-experimenter and author Tom Ferris on his podcast, 4hourworkweek.com slash podcast slash constantly declaring his love of the philosophy as well as many of his uh, often famous guests. Is there any insight you can offer into it and or its relationship with the Bible? Well, uh, Timo, there is. Uh, in fact, a, a real good book on this would be Abraham J. Mallerby. Uh, M-A-L-H-E-R-B-E, Paul and the Popular Philosophers, though uh, it's common to, uh, I mean, others have written about this too. Bultmann, for example, did his doctoral dissertation on Paul's use of the Stoic diatribe, a rhetorical device where you anticipate some objection or question from the audience, and uh, you embody it in your speech or your writing. Uh, and you find this often, especially in Romans. But someone will say, so-and-so, uh, shall we do good then? Shall we do evil then that good may abound? Or whatever. And he says, perish the thought. Uh, may it never be. May genoito. May it never be. Uh, and that's that's a classic Stoic um, device. But of course, anybody could use that. Uh, how about stoic content well yeah uh the uh the thing in philippians i know how both to be abased and to abound uh, and uh you know he's uh if good things come fine but he doesn't need them he doesn't depend on them he's got an interior source of strength uh in romans uh jeez where is it chapter 8 9 10 somewhere in there uh, he says, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And he said, that's why, and then he names a bunch of circumstances and angelic powers and says, none of these things can separate us from the love of God shown in Christ. Well, uh, this seems to hark back to the notion central to Stoicism that nothing is happening to you 
at random, that everything is sent your way by the Logos of God, of Zeus in particular, they, the Stoics invented the technique of allegory, uh, this story of definite people in definite circumstances is really a story symbolic of general principles. Philo used this with uh, the Old Testament, his Bible, and said that Abraham is really the Logos, and Sarah is the receptive human mind, and when she is miraculously pregnated with Isaac, it's the, that's what happens when the mind accepts the wisdom of God, and so on and so on. Um, well, so the Stoics invented that, and the reason they did was that uh, the gods were depicted in such uh, poor uh, light in uh, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Theogony, and all that stuff, that it was embarrassing. I mean, God is, uh, Zeus is out raping mortal women? Oh my God, what the... Uh, and uh, so they figured, okay, uh, this this is unbecoming, but they just couldn't let go of the old classic scriptures, and that's what the Greeks thought they were. And so they said, well, this is only embarrassing if you take it literally. And in fact, it, the fact that it is embarrassing is designed to make you look for deeper meanings. Exactly what the Alexandrian church father Origen said. Oh, yeah, there, there's thousands of uh, flaws and inaccuracies in the Gospels alone. But you see, that's to alert you. you got to keep digging there must be the in, the inerrant infallible truth is the the allegorical meaning behind it so i i, I don't uh, take allegory very seriously it seems to me it's a, not a way of interpreting a text it's a way of using a text as a ventriloquist dummy uh, finding an excuse to say well it does sound bad but it really is good and you know you already know the supposed truth why do you even need to bother trying to feed it through the Bible as a meat grinder. Um, but this notion that uh, all things happen by the will of God, because the Logos is the reason of God permeating all of uh, reality. Everything that happens, happens by the will of the divine word. And, uh, and therefore, what should you decide? Well, you should accept the implications of that, that whatever is happening to you is to hap is happening according to divine purpose for your own good. Oh, you say, what? But someone will say, how can it be for my good if my family are wiped out in a flood or I'm disabled or something? Uh, how's that my good? Well, uh, that shows, my friend, that you're not yet enlightened. What you need to see is that the only thing that matters is virtue. And everything that happens, really, especially the, quote, bad, unquote, stuff, is like a hammer and chisel to perfect your virtue. And it will, if you let it. But as long as you kick against the goads, which uh, you know, said to Paul, you're just going to be miserable. What you need to do is to uh, change your values because you understand what's really going on in the world. What, what are you complaining for? Do you know better than God? Because God, uh, the Logos, has caused all these things to happen, and it's pretty clear how you should react. Well, it wasn't that important anyway. Uh, 
things that were pleasant, nothing wrong with that, but if they're taken away, what the heck? It's, it's my character that matters, and this is just a way of uh, strengthening it. That's kind of what's going on in the New Testament, and in fact, in all claims that uh, God will protect you. Have you ever noticed this, that pious talk, that don't worry, you know, God is with you, what can mere man do to you? And, you know, you don't have to worry because God's got your back and, and so on. That's a kind of bait-and-switch thing, right? If they seem to be, people that say that seem to mean things are going to come out okay. Now that you're one of God's children, he's going to make sure it's smooth sailing. But then when things start uh, becoming very difficult, and I don't mean like, you know, explicitly religious, you're getting persecuted for your faith, just, you know, things, you're getting bummed out. Uh, they say, oh, oh, well, you, you see, God is protecting you and seeing that good things happen, but, and then they flip right over to Stoicism. What is good in God's mind is not necessarily good in yours because you've got the worm's eye view of the matter. Uh, God is is doing the best thing for you. So the what turned out to be, I'm sorry, what, what first sounded like a promise that you will like the results uh, turns out to boil down to stoicism. I better take what comes with a stiff upper lip, and that's kind of what we mean when we say someone is being stoic about this. Right? And then, uh, you know, you just better roll with the punches. And so it doesn't ultimately mean what it sounded like it meant. Uh, it's like answered prayer. That's another variety of the same thing. Oh, yes, God answers prayer. Uh, and then I uh, said, well, look, I've been praying for the salvation of my buddy and nothing happens and he just got killed. Uh, uh, he's probably in hell, right? Uh, how's that uh, an answered prayer? And uh, they say, well, God does answer prayer, but sometimes the answer is no. Or he's like God's will is like the eight ball, right? Sometimes the, the quote, answer is ask again later right come on it's bait and switch so uh, but all of that really is stoicism uh, and um, there, there's some great stuff Marcus Aurelius's meditations well worth reading and very uh, very wise and so on even if you don't buy the whole stoic thing stoicism reminds me very much of Buddhism uh, very uh, similar in the, the idea though I I uh, tend to think stoic I'm sorry Buddhism is a bit on the neurotic side you've got to minimize any attachments to anything stoicism walks a bit of a uh, finer line or a tightrope in that it says the pleasant well ultimately it's indifferent it doesn't really matter but there's no nothing wrong with enjoying it in the meantime that seems to me to be a, a healthier way psychologically than to get ready to be deprived of everything by forming an inner detachment so that in effect you're already uh, deprived of it I, I think that's neurotic but stoicism is a bit uh, a bit more healthy-minded than that, in my humble opinion. But yeah, Stoicism is very, very important to uh, the New Testament. And and it's not merely... Like, I would say Stoicism influenced Buddhism, or, or vice versa, but uh, it's it's the New Testament is not simply parallel to Stoicism. It uh, it seems like it's it is influenced by, you know... 
Acts 17 actually says Paul was addressing Stoics and Epicureans. Uh, so they knew about Stoicism, and there was there's even an apocryphal exchange of short letters, supposedly, between Paul and uh, Seneca, uh, who was another great Stoic. And uh, Seneca was Gallio's brother, the proconsul of Achaia, whom, uh, before whom Paul uh, is hauled in Acts, uh, was it 16 or somewhere in there? Um, so, yeah, Stoicism is very important for it. It's the name for the Stoa, the porch, uh, where um, uh, Zeno of Citium used to meet with his disciples. Uh, okay, uh, let's see. Uh, who sent this in? This is... Let me try to get this right. Pauli Carpaz Mirna. Sorry about that. Carpaz Mirna. I think that's right. The Acts of the Apostles. He says A X E. My friend, the fiction writer Richard Tierney, uh, used to say that apologists are grinding the Acts of the Apostles. I always like that. Um, mein Geek. Deutsche accent requested. Okay. I was listening to back episodes of the podcast, and in one episode, the parable of the shrewd manager was brought up. For instance, here's the relevant section. And he, all, he said also unto his disciples, a certain man was rich who had a steward, and he was accused to him as scattering his goods or wasting and having called them, he said, What is this I hear about thee? Render the account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest not any longer be steward. And the steward said in himself, What shall I do, because my Lord doth take away the stewardship from me? To dig I am not able, to beg I am ashamed. I have known what I shall do, that when I may be removed from the stewardship, they may receive me to their houses." And having called near uh, each one of his lord's debtors, he said to the first, How much dost thou owe to my lord? And he said, A hundred baths of oil. And he said to him, Take thy bill, and having sat down, write fifty. Afterward to another, he said, And thou, how much dost thou owe? And he said, A hundred cores of wheat. And he saith to him, Take thy bill and write eighty. And the Lord commended the, right, the unrighteous steward that he did prudently, because the sons of this age are more prudent than the sons of the light in respect of their generation. And I say to you, make to yourselves friends out of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye may fail, they may receive, or some manuscripts have, when it fails, they may receive you to the age-enduring tabernacles, or the eternal dwellings. Uh, that's uh, that's uh, Luke 16, 1-9 from Young's literal translation. A bit too literal for my liking. It's just a thought I had while listening, but allow me to propose some exegesis that at least sound plausible to me. It's some sort of weird Gnostic thing. 
Specifically, the master does in fact represent Jesus the Christ, while the manager obviously represents somebody who is unsaved, either a Jew, if it's only kind of Gnostic, or a pupotato, non-Gnostic Christian, if it's really Gnostic. Then the message is this. If you are not one of the elect who are going to be saved by Christ, then you'll be better off ingratiating yourself with somebody who is willing to save you. That is, the master's debtors. And there's nothing wrong with that. Jesus is even encouraging you to. I'm not sure if this is supposed to be like Jews should keep the Torah... Uh, because at least then the demiurge will take care of them, are more like even if you don't have the gnosis, at least go ahead with ecclesiastical Christianity because that's better than nothing. Am I completely wrong here, or is this a plausible route for this pericope? Um, let's see, let's see. Yeah, I, I think this centers in the idea that even though the guy was a rogue, he was doing the best he could. And uh, who who is supposed to be the son of light here? Uh, that would probably be pretty important. The sons of light would be the Gnostic who knows better than the pew potato, but the pew potato does what he can. A kind of weaker brethren thing. I've never thought of it that way, but I suppose that could be because you, everybody has this problem with the fact that the Lord commends the uh, the cheater, the guy that uh, apparently. I mean, there's a lot of debate over this too, but I, I think what's going on here is that what the um, manager does while he's still employed briefly is he says he goes to the guys with uh, who still have to pay a bill and and cuts the amount in half so they can keep the rest of the money and the records which have been the the books have been cooked will show they owed less than they actually did and because they now can keep more of the money they will show gratitude to the steward and uh, give him a job there which seems a little weird because you'd think they would expect him to start pulling the same sort of stunt, right? Uh, uh, so it's a little confusing any way you, you look at it, but that does seem to be the attitude of the Gnostics. Uh, they said that Christ, the, the revealer, came to en enlighten the sons of light, but as for everybody else, conventional Jewish or Christian piety would be good enough. Uh, they wouldn't be damned for it, and that Christ had died for them. And so faith in him would avail to save them, but sort of on a lower level, kind of like in Buddhism or Hinduism, where uh, if you are truly enlightened, you uh, merged with the Buddha nature or, or Brahman or whatever. But if you're not, still uh, a good moral life will get you into some kind of heaven. It could be. Uh, I, um, I'm i not sure. I think it might be reading something in there, but it's well worth considering. Fascinating. Uh, Phil the Thrill says, What's your interpretation of the story of David and Goliath? I know the imagery of someone throwing stones or spears or arrows tends to be solar. 
Is there a Greek or Canaanite or Egyptian counterpart to David that you know of? He goes on to be considered a king and a psalm writer according to tradition. But I don't, uh, sorry, but I know he doesn't pass Old Testament minimalist muster. Any interpretations of how or why that happened? Uh, You mean that he uh, doesn't qualify as a historical character? Um, That uh, may be because of the magnitude of the feats he performs, and he seems like sort of an epic character, but then so did Alexander the Great, and uh, he was real. Uh, David means beloved, and there is some reason to, to say that he may have been a god who has shrunk to the stature of a human hero, something that's happened a number of places in the Bible and other myths. Uh, I would suspect there is some kind of um, um, some sort of astronomical, astrological meaning to it that it's sort of uh, the opposite of the story of Halal, the son of Shahar, the morning star, the planet Venus, which which is personified and says, it gets too big for its britches and says, you know, I'm going to rule the heavens. And uh, like the Most High does, and the Most High apparently here is associated with the sun, as in the psalm, for Yahweh our God is a sun, S-U-N, and shield. Um, There, of course, is a frontery, a slap down as soon as the sun rises, but in fact, the... the, In in, uh, the David and Goliath story, it's the... What does Dorothy call herself in the Wizard of Oz? The the meek and the, the, the small and meek. Uh, she uh, managed to manages to defeat the witch and uh, get the better of the wizard. It, it seems to be something. I mean, at the very least, it's a kind of a fable of saying that brains win over brawn, right? It's the skill of this humble kid who has perforce learned how to deal with animal threats to his flock and he's not a warrior the ar- the armor they put on him is too big so he just goes out uh, wearing his his loincloth as usual but manages to put one right between the eyes of the giant goliath and kill him no sword no nothing uh, that it could be simply a an almost an aesop's fable that says that but uh, if I knew this whole area better, I might be able to uh, surmise some sort of star or sun or moon uh, connection with it. I invite uh, Bible Geek listeners to make some suggestions. Um, but I don't know of similar stories in ancient Near Eastern mythology, though there may well be one. I don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of it. Um, let's see if Paul Chapman says, uh, question one. One has been puzzling... Wait a minute. This has been pu- pu- puzzling... Wait a minute. 
This is confusing to me. He's puzzled over the pronunciation of uh, E-R-U-D-I-T-E and the noun E-R-U-D-I-T-I-O-N. Uh, it seems like you pronounce it erudite or erudition, adding to my mind an extra syllable. I've taken it out for a spin a couple of times in general conversation and raised eyebrows, the more common being the erudite pronunciation. Is this another case of impious being, for the most part, incorrectly pronounced? Um, uh, let's, I learned from you that it is correctly pronounced impious rather than impious. Uh, yeah, the impious is the correct um, pronunciation. Um, you know, that, that whole thing language evolves so that um, once this takes over completely, it will be the right pronunciation. Like it was incorrect to, to say, oh yeah, I feel all right and spell it A-L-R-I-G-H-T. But uh, technically that is not a word in the dictionary. It's supposed to be two words, A-L-L space R-I-G-H-T. But everybody uses all right similarly to all together as one word. Uh, and so I stick with the two words, but what is right? I mean, the dictionary reflects the current usage and uh, it changes. But impious is the way it was supposed to be pronounced for a long time. Uh, let's see. As, uh, let's see here. So, well, basically, this boils down to uh, let's see. It seems it sounds more erudite to say erudite. Ha ha. He says, uh, "Now I'm not really sure what that's supposed to be. I, I think I have heard both, and I'm not sure. I have to look that up." I think Professor Kingsfield says to to uh, Mr. Gagarian, says, uh, sp speak up, fill the room with your erudition. So I don't know. I'll have to check that out. Good question. Do you have any more commonly mispronounced words that raise your ire? Um, hmm, hmm. Uh, well, of course, there's the... Uh, the the pseudo verb prophesize meaning to to give a prophecy but that's not in the dictionary people say that cuz they get confused about prophecy with a c y and uh, the noun and the verb prophesy with an s y which means to utter a prophecy uh, so um if you want to sound educated which sometimes i do uh, I, I I never use the word prophesize because it sort of has the uh, the air of ignorance about it. Um, oh, let's see what else. Uh, oh boy, 
Well, it bothers me a little bit that people say Yahweh when uh, this when they're speaking a word spelled according to a German transliteration of Hebrew, uh, and where it sh- they're trying to get across the pronunciation Yahweh with an aspirated H and uh, the uh, taking the German W, which is supposed to be pronounced as a V, as an English W. And I, I so I try to be correct. Uh, who cares, right? But uh, in Lovecraft circles, we have the same problem. My old pal uh, S.T. Joshi says uh, C-T-H-U-L-H-U as Clulu, semi-aspirated, uh, and uh, with no th sound, because Lovecraft s- said that that's the way you're supposed to pronounce it. In fact, he had about three different pronunciations depending on who tells the tale. But somebody said a correspondent said, "Well, wait a minute. Why the heck do you spell it with a th in it then?" And he says, "Hey, look, it's it's not my doing. This is the way the aliens pronounced it, which of course is just a joke. <laughs> I hope." And uh, I guess the same thing here. I hate to be a stickler, uh, but I guess once I know the right thing, I, the the real thing, I tend to want to use it. Um, there must be other examples of this. Can't think of any at the moment, though. Hmm. Again, if any Bible Geek listeners remember my... Uh, uttering uh, pedantic words on the topic, let me know. Um, oh, boy, there's, uh, there's something I must be missing here. Oh, one thing that drives me nuts is, again, with Lovecraft, the so-called Cthulhu mythos. Uh, that's obviously the closer to the Greek word that we just borrow as myth. For years, I have heard people refer to it as the mythos, uh, and that makes me want to vomit, I have to admit. Uh, surely it's mythos, uh, and and myth is the, uh, the, the pronunciation, or uh, mythos, if you prefer. Like, mythos has come to imply, I think, in its usage, a myth cycle, a set of myths. Well, that's okay. Um, but technically, it's just a Greek word for myth or story, right? Ooh, um, man, again, there must be more, but uh, of course, you're not supposed to say gnostic, right? Uh, it's, it's a silent G, though I haven't heard too many people say that occasionally. And... Uh, Ooh, I don't know, maybe more will come to me as soon as the podcast is over, typically, right? Question two from Paul. You mentioned in a 2011 Bible Geek, you have a theory that uh, Hegesippus is actually just Josephus. Could you expand on that, please? I'm fascinated by Eisenman's hinting in James, the brother of Jesus, that Josephus's work was reworked or even commissioned or even commissioned uh, Paul slash Clemens clash, uh, slash uh, 
Epaphroditus were a cabal within the Herod slash Caesar slash Flavian household, an instrumental in the creation of Christianity. Could just sharpen my thinking on this subject. Uh, yeah, this idea that Christianity was some sort of uh, artificial product by the Romans. I've known people I respect who think that, and there there are interesting theories about that from. Oh, uh, well, I can't think of his name. Uh, fellow in Australia, Cliff. Oh, I don't know. Uh, hmm. I, oh, man. I know it's not that Cliff Clavin. Uh, boy, who knows? Uh, Margaret um, uh, Morrison has a similar theory. And uh, let's see. Joe Atwill has one. Anything's possible, but I I personally find that 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 implies usually implies a hyper speculative decoding of the Gospels and or a neglect of all manner of material in the Gospels that wouldn't be there if it were uh, what these theorists say a parody or whatever and uh, so that that I don't quite buy but Paul uh, Eisenman argues that Paul is presented as a Herodian uh, because of some names he mentions in Romans 16 uh, that that's possible though again that seems kind of speculative uh, but the uh, the Josephus thing I was just dealing with this in the chapter of Holy Fable I'm working on today on the book of Acts uh, where uh, I, I'm talking about how there are these two versions of the martyrdom of James the Just, one in Josephus, which is very short, and one considerably longer in Hegesippus, the second-century Jewish Christian historian, uh, extracts of whose work are preserved in Eusebius. And uh, I uh, suggested that that originally the Josephus version is not even about James the Just or being the brother of Jesus called the Christ. But I think this is Richard Carrier's theory, which I find very convincing, that it's really talking about a struggle for the high priesthood between the family of Damnaeus and that of... Um, um, oh boy, I'm getting tired here. Think uh, Ananus, uh, ultimately related to the New Testament people, uh, and that what Josephus is telling us is that uh, James, the son of Damnius, was uh, elected high priest, but that Ananus, who again his family had been priest for a long time, decided to take it away from him by having him uh, eliminated and stoned to death on false charges during a time when there was no procurator. It was an interregnum where they'd gotten rid of one and hadn't gotten the other there yet, and he took advantage, ordinarily needing the permission of the Roman procurator to execute somebody, but he took advantage while nobody was mind of the store and stoned this guy on a pretext. But some who uh, naturally protested this treatment informed the procurator once he got there. And so uh, Ananus, who had briefly gotten the position, 
it was was canned and to try to rectify what had happened they gave the high priesthood to Jesus the high priesthood being what the, called the Christ called the anointed means they gave it to Jesus son of Damnius the surviving brother of James I think that's probably right but it's obvious that early Christians thought it referred to Jesus Christ and James the just and my suspicion is that the Hegesippus is is like a midrashic embellished expansion of Josephus written by and for Christians because uh, Josephus was widely circulated and translated and one of the versions is called the Yosipan in transliteration J-O-S-I-P-P-O-N obviously a, ver a version of Josephus but if that's possible, I wonder if Hegesippus is some some takeoff on the Josephus, Josephus being the uh, the title of the work by now, as we still use it, and that uh, so I have a sneaking suspicion that uh, that was another version of of Josephus, but there's no way to know. Still, I think it's worth mentioning, and and it is certainly just speculation on my part. There's no way to prove it. I don't know if you could even say it's likely, though I find it plausible and, and an interesting possibility. Um, hmm. Okay, one more. Bill says, There's a sentiment among spiritual people I know that Gnostic Christians, as generic as that term probably is, were on to something that was crushed under the rise of orthodoxy, a different, they would probably assume, more authentic faith experience than dogma and creeds. The theme I see in some Gnostic sects is mankind's reunion with and dilution, uh, dissolution or dissolving into the divine. You know, God will be all in all in 1 Corinthians 15. I'm thinking in particular of your story about the sect that had the bridal chamber room. Yeah, various people did. I think the Valentinians and uh, certain Syrian and Jewish Christians. Are traditions like that gone from modern Christianity? I just watched a video from Vice News that showed Pentecostals rolling around on the floor and speaking in tongues. Watching the video made me wonder if the Pentecost in Acts was a reference to something that happened often in sects throughout the early church. Yeah, I think you're right. Would I have seen similar things happening in some Gnostic groups? Could any other Gnostic traditions be hiding out in modern Christianity? Well, uh, one thing, docetism, I think, is very common. It's not supposed to be the belief of any modern Christian group. But if you look at what people say about Jesus, it's questionable whether they think he was genuinely human. Uh, could G like Schleiermacher said, Jesus could never have made a mistake in his math class as a kid. Uh, stuff like that. Could Jesus ever have missed it when he was hammering a nail into a wood and smacked his thumb? Oh, no, he couldn't have done that. Uh, some say, well, Jesus could never have been sick because he was a sacrificial lamb and the lamb had to be perfect physically. Wait a minute. Uh, and uh, if you think about it, the, the notion that uh, uh, 
Jesus couldn't have married, that that would be some awful thing, which is the stupid premise of the book, The Da Vinci Code, that if you could show Jesus was uh, married, it would show that he was actually human, as if that hadn't been the orthodox view since the fourth century, right? Uh, divine and human. Uh, if if I, they Christians have generally thought Jesus wasn't married, and there's no real evidence that he's supposed to have been married, but it wouldn't really have mattered. It raises fun, speculative questions, like if he had been, uh, it's like Superman marrying Lois Lane. Would the kids have been half divine? Would they have been demigods? Well, yeah, that's probably what they would have said because there were plenty of myths about demigods who had a divine parent and a human parent. But nonetheless, I mean, it's who, who knows? Uh, it's, it doesn't mean that it's, um, that it's unthinkable theologically that Jesus could have been married. But some people, I think, flinch from the whole idea. They don't like th to think of Jesus going to the bathroom. Uh, and uh, why? He's a human being, for Pete's sake. Uh, he's supposed to be anyway. And so I think many people uh, are, are, in effect, docetists. Uh, and uh, on a higher note of abstraction, many must be Monophysites and uh, uh, Apollinarians believing that Jesus had a human body but uh, that uh, where we would have a, a mind or a soul, he had God. And, and that, of course, is not supposed to be or the orthodox Christianity their churches espouse. There are also people trying to rediscover Gnosticism by using the Nag Hammadi texts as the scriptures in their church. There are Gnostic churches. Uh, Stefan Huller, not not our buddy, the uh, Stefan Huller, H-U-L-L-E-R, but Stefan Huller, H-O-E-L-L-E-R, uh, an old man by now, I think, a uh, great sense of humor, a uh, great scholar. He's written books on Jung and the Gnostic Gospels, very fascinating. And he has a theologically modernized, non-neurotic uh, version of Gnostic uh, thinking in, in his church. And there's a church of Mary Magdalene somewhere out in California and various other ones. So, but, but I think you're asking if so-called mainstream Christianity has Gnostic elements to it. And uh, I guess there are some, but... Uh, oh, uh, one book you might find interesting that doesn't quite put it in terms of Gnosticism, but it's still relevant to what you're asking, is Jacob Needleman, as spelled like it sounds... Uh, just a second, there's Commissioner Gordon again. Uh, okay. Yeah, uh, in, in, uh, in, he has his book, um, Lost Christianity, uh, which is really fascinating about uh, the mystical core that he think, thinks has been, uh, uh, has been lost and, and how one may open oneself to, to this. And uh, so that's... Uh, uh, that's well worth reading. I'd recommend that book. Um, though, let's keep in mind that, well, at least to me, it is not clear that Gnostics had any kind of Satori-like experiential uh, revelation 
though they may have, I'm willing to accept that somebody like Meister Eckhart uh, is uh, explaining, is expressing that, or the Sufis, or Buddhists, or yogis. But uh, it seems to me that quite often the enlightenment that the Gnostics ba- bragged about having was just having a superior revelation as they thought, namely knowing all kinds of nifty secrets that other people didn't. Like that, well, you know, your God is not the ultimate God. Uh, he's only the demiurge, the real father is far above that and, and, and stuff like that. We know the real truth about Jesus and so on. I'm not sure if they had a different, if there was any existential uh, personality change. In fact, I, I often wonder about people's claims to be spiritual. I don't know what that is supposed to mean, even after decades of studying uh, this stuff. I, I have to say I have no interest in a spiritual quest anymore. Uh, to, to me, uh, you know, if, if and especially if there is this merging with the all, boy, I am certainly not interested in that. And if if you're if you have to slough off your individual personality, to hell with that. You know, I am the only me I know and love. Why give that up to just dissolve into an ocean of uh, pure consciousness? Not consciousness of anything. You, know, you can keep it. Um, so I'm not even sure. Uh, maybe that just just shows how unspiritual a lout I am. But. Uh, that, that period is past for me. Sp- I, I regard spirituality as the uplift one gets from uh, sublime uh, thoughts or music or art, uh, the, the, the deep level on which one can be moved. But, uh, but I guess that's enough of my... Uh, my uh, did I miss anything in this question? Oh... Yeah, well, I guess I've dealt with that stuff. Oh, well, let me just, since I got so many darn questions here, I uh, so darn many, I mean, uh, let me polish another one off here so the list will be shorter. Jason, he says, I was looking at Matthew 18 on BibleHub.com and noticed that in Matthew 18.22, in which Jesus replies to Peter about how many times he should forgive the sins of his brother, there are differing translations about what Jesus' reply is. Some translations, such as the New International Version and the English Standard Version, say 77 times, while most other translations say 70 times 7 which would be a 490, why the discrepancy, which is the more accurate translation. I think that uh, each is legitimate, and unfortunately there's simply an inherent ambiguity in the text. It's like the word order is not as precise as in English, and um, so it could mean either one, but of course the, it doesn't really matter. It's kind of moot because uh, Jesus is saying, what you, you think there is a, a, a list, even a long one, that if you forgave him that many times, you could say, okay, that's over with, wham. Uh, and the point is you, you should always forgive. Uh, and... Um, that's, uh, you know, you might want to protect yourself depending on what it was you're forgiving the person for, but, you know, you might want to adopt the uh, the uh, belief that, look, they're just screwed up. I, I got to 
take precautions, but I have to consider the source and not be offended. I've known people like that. A friend of mine said that he, his, his dad had a brain tumor and was uh, getting increasingly difficult to get along with. He was getting nastier and nastier. And my friend said he knew it wasn't really his dad. It was the the result of this brain tumor, but he sure didn't like it. And and that was his struggle. He had to consider why his dad was like this and to try to let it pass uh, off him like water off a duck's back, right? And I think, you know, yeah, that's if the guy is offending me that many times, you know, or or somebody that's always uh, ooh, addicted or something. And, and the closer you and the more you lend him money, for instance, uh, the sorry are you going to be? Well, you might find uh, I, guess, gee, I guess I'm enabling the person. Uh, I got to stop that. And that may be tough, but I will admit he's in control of, of uh, something else. In a sense, it's not his fault. Uh, taking a kind of a broad-minded attitude like that, I, I think, uh, makes what is said there not naive and foolish. But I, in terms of, no, I, I'm ten, I am tempted to think we're supposed to understand this as seventy times seven because of the the allusion that would imply to the opposite of forgiveness in Genesis where uh, Lamech is now in possession of weapons made by his son Tubal Cain and says uh, if Cain be avenged sevenfold surely Lamech oh I'm sorry yeah this is fit with the 77 um, surely Lamech 77 fold uh, so that you know maybe that ought to push us toward the 77 and Jesus is saying, or Mark is saying, whatever, um, forgive not just seven times, but 77 times. I guess that would push me towards 77 more. But uh, again, I think it's kind of moot given the point. I mean, you're really going to count that many times. Uh, Commander Scotty, could you please explain why the translators of the Septuagint changed the order of the Hebrew Bible and then also added more books to the canon? The order, I don't know. Uh, it's a little more, uh, the main principle seems to have been to group books together according to genre. But uh, I'm not really sure. However, the, the greater number of books, the the canon, the definitive list, was uh, long in formation, and uh, there were different opinions, and the Septuagint, of course, was translated into Greek for the benefit of diaspora Jews, whose ancestors had been in the diaspora that is scattered all over the Mediterranean world, and who no longer spoke Hebrew and couldn't read it. And uh, so they uh, said, well, they got to be able to read the Bible, and they translated it into Greek. And this wasn't the only Greek translation. Same thing for the Targums, these Aramaic paraphrases of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, again, a lot of Jews were, were able to speak Aramaic, but no longer Hebrew. They would hear it as a liturgical language in synagogue, but you know, what, are they, what are they saying? And, uh, and so uh, some took it upon themselves to 
do Aramaic paraphrases, kind of like the Living Bible. When Kenneth Taylor wanted to read the Bible to his young kids every night, and they said, "Dad, what is? What are you talking about? That's not the English I know." I guess he's reading the King James Bible. So he went and got the American Standard Version, which still has these and thous and stuff, and would confuse kids. But he did a paraphrase eventually of the whole Bible as a children's Bible, essentially. And that was the idea of the Targums, only it was also in a different language. Well, same thing with the Septuagint. And uh, diaspora Jews used a bunch of books originally written in Greek, uh, and they had become part of the synagogue reading schedules. And, uh, you know, okay, today's reading from the prophet so-and-so. And... Uh, and um, it looks like, uh, for instance, the wisdom of Jesus ben Sirah, or the wisdom of Jesus son of Sirach, or just Sirach, or Ecclesiasticus. Uh, all these are interchangeable titles. This had a Hebrew original, but was translated into Greek and was widespread around the Mediterranean. Something like the Wisdom of Solomon, a very similar, though shorter, book, was written apparently by Greek-speaking Jews in Alexandria. Uh, and uh, the books of the Maccabees, and all these books appear to have been, the so-called Apocrypha, appear to have been written in Greek. Maybe there's an, uh, a, a Hebrew basis, like the additions to Daniel. Um, they, they're in Greek, but we do know of uh, other snippets in Aramaic in the Dead Sea Scrolls that didn't wind up in the canon. So what happened basically was that... Um, when somewhere in the late first century CE or AD, Jews in Palestine, the rabbis there, decided to restrict the list of books. Of course, nobody would do that if there weren't more books being used and there were doubts about them. Uh, they, they decided that it would be just the, as we divide them, 39 books. I think it's 24 in Hebrew because they don't split up Chronicles, Samuel, or Kings into first and second, right, and stuff like that. And the the prophets, the 12 so-called minor prophets, are considered one book. But they decided that those originally written in Hebrew would be the scriptures, the Tanakh, uh, which is an acronym for the Hebrew words for the law, the prophets, and the writings, which was a miscellaneous catch-all. Uh, and so they were excluding works in Greek, but uh, when the uh, Septuagint translators translated it, they just added the ones that were already in Greek. And this, the Septuagint became the Christian Bible. And centuries and centuries later, Martin Luther decided, you know, I think the Palestinian Jewish rabbis were right. Uh, we, we should exclude these books. Uh, and uh, though he translated them, and the King James Bible even had the Apocrypha as a kind of an appendix to the whole thing. Uh, people weren't thinking there was much wrong with the, the Apocrypha. But they just felt like uh, maybe it shouldn't be part of the canon. In fact, apocrypha means hidden writings. But all that denoted was that in synagogue worship, in Palestine anyway, you left them in the cupboard. You didn't bring them out for the yearly cycle of readings. You studied them. Uh, 
you could teach from them, but they weren't part of the, the liturgical calendar of readings, and that's all Apocrypha meant. Uh, and uh, I think it was 1823 when they stopped publishing the King James with the Apocrypha. Um, so it was a, a different canon with different origins. And uh, I guess that answers. I'm not quite sure why the difference in uh, in the order, though. Uh, used to know that. I think it is known. I just don't happen to uh, or to remember. So Commander Scotty teaches medieval studies out of the University of Michigan in Dearborn, and we're working on the schedule for me to appear on a panel out there about radical criticism of the Old Testament, the, the New Testament, and the Koran. That's going to be a lot of fun. And I am insisting that we have the symposium at Famous Dave's. Uh, whether that'll work out or not, I don't know, but it uh, should be fun. I'll let you know more about it when I... Uh, I think it's going to be in early November. Okay. Um, mm, oh, boy, I can't resist another short one from Alexander... He says, uh, another question from Alexander, the Ph.D. student in Ohio, soon to be assistant professor in South Carolina. Well, congratulations. I have a quick question concerning the uh, chronology of the New Testament writings. When I listen to the arguments of Dr. Richard Carrier, I get the sense that he considers the theology of the, quote, genuine Pauline epistles to be quite different from that of the Gospels. Now, this raises some questions for me. If your theory is correct that Simon Magus is the fount of the historical Paul, and that Simonianism is a kind of inspiration for Paulinism, then does any of the material in the Pauline epistles go back to the go back to the mid to late first century, even if it's in a garbled form. Uh, if if anything, even just core nuggets of the Pauline epistles do stem from first century religious teachings, then might not we expect the Gospels to display a great deal of influence from or dialogue uh, with concepts in the epistles, the Matthean antitheses come to mind, but if all the Gospels are comparatively late, wouldn't we expect there to be a great deal more of that, even in Mark? Uh, thanks a bunch. Well, this is kind of slippery, because uh, um, David Oliver Smith, in a book called uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Paul, argues that there is significant use of the Pauline epistles in the Gospels. And he tries to show, you know, similar trains of thought and so on. I'm not sure I find it convincing, but I kind of do because I've taken for granted for a long time a very similar theory that a whole lot of, of uh, items from the epistles, especially like Romans chapter 12, and uh, and even from the book of Revelation, have uh, wound up in the Gospels. And uh, it's some of the ethical and pious uh, sorts of material, uh, a bunch of things. So you, you can imagine that they have. In fact, I, I think the ethical and pious teaching attributed to Jesus is an attempt to fill a vacuum once people began to historicize Jesus, 
and uh, so that you know they got it from somewhere, and a bunch of it does kind of sound like the epistles. Certainly the idea of Jesus' death as an atonement, which at least comes up in John, uh, is like the Pauline theology. It's not identical to it, but that could well be from Pauline influence. And uh, so uh, it's, it's hard to say. Uh, on the other hand, the attitude toward him, uh, Paul from emerging Catholicism seems to have been that, as Tertullian said, Paul was the uh, the apostle of Marcion and of the heretics. Uh, well, they the first commentators we know on the so-called Pauline epistles were Valentinian Gnostics, and I think that the first known Paulinists were Gnostics and Marcionites the so-called or the supposed addressees, the Corinthians, the Romans, the Galatians, I think uh, are, are fictive, uh, that the, they are the narratees, the people being spoken to by the uh, ostensible author, but that they're like people Jesus is addressing in the Sermon on the Mount. They're really characters in the story, though little is said of them. Uh, so uh, it seems to me that the earliest Paulinists we know of are these second century people. Uh, let's see. And uh, because they were big fans, like read uh, the Gnostic Paul by uh, um, oh, good God. Elaine Pagels. She shows how great a use they made of them people like Tertullian and others at first seem to have ignored the epistles, though Richard Pervo makes a pretty good case that the writer of Acts has used them here and there, that the similarities are not merely parallels, but borrowings. And now, so you could have unacknowledged use made of it, because even on his reading, Acts does not portray Paul as an epistolarian. Right, this is a book that actually has other people writing letters and reproduces what are supposed to be the letters. Chapter 15, the Apostolic Decree, it's a letter, an encyclical. Uh, Claudius Lysias, the Roman, uh, writes a letter about Paul and he quotes it and so on. Uh, but Paul is not said to have written any letters. Uh, that's kind of odd. I mean, not absolutely damning, but a uh, little odd. And so the theory is that in most of the second century, even if Paul's epistles were known, they weren't quoted because they were thought to be Gnostic or tinged with it. Justin Martyr doesn't ever mention Paul. Now, how the heck could that be? Uh, well, because he uh, certainly mentioned Marcion and hated him, and maybe he uh, figured, look, if they're using these things, I'm not touching them. Uh, so... Um, the uh, so the, now of course this changes as of Irenaeus and Tertullian, who hit upon the idea of co-opting the Pauline epistles and saying, you know, you Marcionites, you Gnostics, you are the ones twisting the text here. Paul's good, yeah, he's fine. We do accept him, but you're screwing him up. Uh, and uh, of course, they can only do this because. Uh, 
Polycarp or somebody had already padded out the, their edition of the Pauline epistles uh, with uh, all sorts of stuff that Catholicized him and made him safe for Catholic Christianity. Uh, and uh, I think that's, uh, that's what's going on there. Uh, the, and the Gospels do show that too. I think the the idea of the uh, uh, well, not so much the antitheses. They, they're not, they make more sense to me as being like the rabbinic notion of building a fence around the Torah. Your goal is to get people not to break vows, not to murder, not to commit adultery, and so on. So when it says, you've heard it was said to the men of old, don't break your vows, don't commit adultery, don't kill. Uh, but I say to you, don't make a vow to begin with. Uh, don't uh, get angry with your brother. Don't lust after your neighbor's wife. Because the point is, uh, if you can control yourself and nip it in the bud, you're not going to get to the point of breaking the commandment. And that's the important thing, not breaking the commandment. He's not saying the commandment is obsolete. He's trying to say it's it remains in such force that you should take extreme measures to make sure you don't break it. So <coughs> that is, uh, <coughs> excuse me, not Marcionite. I think in the beginning of, uh, well, in the, the keynote speech in Matthew 5, we hear... Um, a warning against those who say that Christ came to abolish the scripture, the law and the prophets. Now that's got to be Marcion, I think. So uh, I see some Polycarpian influence in, in Matthew as well as uh, the others. Uh, Polycarp, I think, was certainly the uh, ecclesiastical redactor who padded out the Gnostic original of John. Uh, I think Polycarp was certainly the ecclesiastical redactor who uh, padded out Luke and wrote most of Acts as well as the the pastoral epistles and if there was a Gnostic secret mark it would have been Polycarp who uh, bowdlerized that too I'm beginning to lose my voice and such so I'll uh, rest up and do another uh, another uh, Bible geek in the near future thank you listeners and Patreon donors and Everybody out there in podcast land, I sure appreciate your help and your interest in this podcast, and I will be with you again pretty soon and be working on some books for you in the meantime. Thanks. Auf Wiedersehen. The Bible Geek was recorded by Robert M. Price and produced by John Felix and Sergeant Yovanovich. Theme song by John Morris. Visit us at robertmprice.mindvendor.com for more info on Robert's projects, purchase Bible Geek merchandise, and click the ever-important Donate button. Send your questions to criticus at aol.com and be sure to rate and review The Bible Geek on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Bible Geek. I'm Torn Atkinson. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. 
In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.